0: it's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue and that's when i really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds investing is about innovation the belief is if there's a new piece of information that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever but that's not how people change their minds Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world uncovering their secrets to success. Julian Brigden is co-founder and president of Macro Intelligence 2 Partners, a macro investment research firm based in Colorado. Julian has over 30 years of experience, including positions in market and policy-focused consulting to hedge funds and institutional investors, taking in stints at Credit Agricole, Medley Global Advisors, UBS, Lehman Brothers and HSBC. As a macro global strategist, Julian has developed an uncanny ability to spot trends ahead of market consensus. Julian explores correlations in both financial markets and the wider economy, deploying them as invaluable investment indicators. I ask him to share some of those during this interview, giving us his world view as we cover each region and asset class. Throughout this career, Julian has been featured on the biggest media outlets around, including Bloomberg, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal. And in 2017, he joined thought leader Raoul Powell to launch Real Visions of Macro Insiders. It's there that Julian offers retail investors Wall Street's elite level insights. And this interview is no different. Enjoy. Welcome, Julian. It's great to have you on the show. So, how are things in Chicago at the moment?
1: Uh, it's beautifully and sunny, actually. I mean, it's, uh, I just came back from the West Coast. Uh, where I was doing this uh, conference and it was stopped off at Palm Springs and it was for a British boy, ridiculously <laughs> hot. Yeah. I just yeah. I just didn't go outside. It was like 92. Oh, wow. So I'm actually quite glad to be back. I think it's 60 today in Chicago
0: and it's nice and sunny. That's good. Yeah. Lovely. Okay. More temperate weather. Uh, than yes, our exactly. Bra- <laughs> that us Brits are used to. Yeah. We, yeah. It's, uh, we're promised nice weather, but we'll see whether that actually takes place for the Bank Holiday weekend starting on yeah, Friday. Never.
1: In my many years of living in the UK, (laughs) never. But I I wish you luck. I wish you luck. Yeah,
0: thank you very much. All right. So we'll we'll open with a question that won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give listeners an early indication of one of the focuses of today's interview. Uh, And that is we've got a lot of uh, investors, particularly equity investors listening in, and they're going to want to know, stock markets are up over 220% over the past decade. But you know, we're, we're reaching a bit of an inflection point if, if that inflection point hasn't already gone, it seems. So can investors reasonably expect anywhere near similar performance over the next decade, do you think?
1: Um, I mean, look, it's a, it's, a, it's a very valid question. And I think it's a slightly convoluted answer in the sense that one of the themes that I've been uh, discussing with, uh, with clients and uh, various conferences is this idea that we're on the cusp of a ordinate rotation, and I call it of biblical proportions in the sense that the last become first and the first last. Mm. And what I really mean by that is that the stocks that have done extraordinarily well over the last decade, I think, will underperform in the next decade. Doesn't necessarily mean that they go down. It's typical that, at least in the initial part of this kind of correction and the rotation, given weightings in markets. That most things go down. And I refer to that as kind of the nasty correction. But ultimately, you typically end up with a nice correction in that the things that you want to own uh, actually go up in, in absolute terms, not just in relative, relative terms. And so, you know, as I said, if I look across markets, I certainly don't think that US stocks, mega cap, tech, deliver anywhere close to the sort of returns that they have over the last decade. And even to be brutally honest, over the last two years, I mean, Mm. two years ago, Apple was, you know, 200 plus percent lower, right? You know, it's rallied 200 plus percent, you know, in that two year period that I just don't see happening again. And I think the unfortunate thing is people, that's how risk is concentrated, right? If you look across particularly. Retail and, and, you know, here in the States, a sort of registered investor advisor portfolio. So, so your stockbroker portfolio, so to speak, that's what they've got everyone in. And, and, you know, they're mostly concentrated in U.S. stocks where they really should be sort of 35 percent overseas. They're probably 85 or 95 percent, you know, in the U.S. So I think it's a very concentrated market. Um, and I don't think that performed going
0: forward. Yeah, OK, absolutely. All right. Well, there's a few things I want to circle back to. But before we do that, I think it would be nice to sort of introduce you and the work that you do at Macro Intelligence 2 Partners uh, there, the work you do with Real Vision, just for anyone that's unfamiliar with that. So firstly, your your homepage, I read that, you know, it leads with this tagline, markets are noisy, we make calm out of the chaos. So talk to us about how you achieve that for for your clients and for your readers.
1: Yeah, so... So the thrust of uh, of Mi2 um, since we set the company up sort of 11 years ago has basically been modelled around a series of of macroeconomic uh, models and forecasting tools that we use and we use that to be honest just to to try and create stability. Okay, so yeah. if we're you know bullish on GDP or bearish on inflation or bullish on inflation or bullish on bond yields, it gives us a thrust or a view or a lean, because I think you always have to have a view pretty much on where you are in the cycle. Mm. If you do that, then you can kind of look across asset classes and say, okay, well, if I think inflation is going up a lot, which we've certainly been in that camp for the last, well, really, we think the cycle based in like 2016, right. absent COVID. But you know, certainly in the last couple of years, and certainly since the beginning of last year, very, very aggressively then you can sort of say well if i think inflation's going up what you know what's in the market right is our bond yields in the market uh, uh, is that, is that properly priced um, do we have um, what's pricing break evens you know sort of inflation hedges where's the equity market based that what's going to happen to the dollar and that sort of thing so it really starts with these sort of macro models that we have because as i said that anchors our view and then you can start looking at things like What's mispriced? How do the technicals look? What are markets positioned for? And the whole idea of the firm was essentially to try and create, as we set it up, the sort of decision making process that you get within a a macro shop, a sort of either
0: a macro hedge fund or a big real money macro shop. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's a macro shop then, but typically, who are the clients that you're producing that research and that content for? Is it predominantly institutional or you've got lots of retail?
1: No, so we have a so we have a big. Uh, you know, the, the business started off as an institutional client base, mostly um, hedge funds, big real money accounts, private offices, um, some very sort of active uh, registered investment advisors, so sort of stop working type uh, guys. Mm. Um, and then we also have, uh, in uh, conjunction with uh, Real Vision, Raul and I, uh, Raoul Powell and I, produce a. a a, re- a more retail orientated product uh, called Macro Insiders and that's a joint product um, that we produce. Uh, it's, you know We put clear concrete recommendations out to people um, in terms of what they should be doing uh, in terms of their portfolios and trade ideas. Um, and so yeah, so we cover both ends of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And that was the next question actually to ask you about the work you do with Rao. Um, so I'll include a link to both Macro Insiders and obviously MI2 uh, in the episode description just so people can check that out. But how I, I just wondered, you know, how did that come about? Uh, do you know Raoul from, from a long while back? From a from a prior life? Right. Yeah, yeah, we,
1: um, we uh, Raoul, actually, so for part of my career, I ended up working at a, a policy consultancy group hmm. called Medley Advisors. And at the time, it was the sort of premier Policy consultancy group uh, out there, tremendously expensive product, like quarter of a million dollars a year subscription. Clearly institutional. Um, and Raul actually was a client when he was working at uh, at at a fund. And so we'd known each other for for many many years. When he launched um, Real Vision, he reached out and said, "Mate, would you you know would you come on and be a be a guest and sort of help?" Helped me, and I really bought into the concept of the sort of uh, democratization of of research. Because mm-hmm. I'm a really, I'm not a big fan of what you know the institutional uh, side gets produced mostly from the banks or the you know they're always sort of pushing an angle. They've yeah. always got to be careful of their M and A business and all those sort of things. You know, it's always ironic. I mean, if you go back and look at you know buy recommendations on the stock market at the highs, it's almost always, always almost at the highest. Right. You know, these guys, I just, I refer to them as, as glorified ambulance chases, right? They just basically trading momentum um, and not really adding an awful lot of value. So I really bought into the concept. And then, um, I did that for a few years. I'd peer periodically on the show. It really helped us. So it really helped him, I think. And then, um, he was, uh, he was approached by a client of his who said, look, I think you and Julian have a really interesting dynamic and I think your timeframes are slightly different. And I think there'd be really added value if you both collaborated on a product. And that was basically the the, the crux of the uh, of the idea. And that's what we did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that interplay between you two, you obviously know each other well. That really comes across in, in, in the videos and really adds something to the content. So definitely urge the listeners to go check that out if they haven't already, of course. Um, so... Now, sort of in an attempt to get your, your macro worldview, if, if, if I'm not being too sort of grandiose about it, I'm, I'm keen to focus, I think, on three key themes. The first of which is inflation. I think that's top of mind for most investors. You know, we've got the economy running about as hot as it ever has. I um, saw that US inflation hit a 41 year high of 8.5% today. Um, but can it run hotter still, in your opinion, would be my first question. In terms of inflation, yes.
1: Um we fear that that's the case. Um, We think uh, that particularly in terms of core inflation, we are going to see prices continue to push significantly higher uh, through the end of the year. Um, So if I look at uh, core CPI today, we printed 6.5. We think we're going to be basically at nine and a half or thereabouts by sort of October. Okay. So we're going to continue to push significantly higher. I mean, absent, you know, a massive correction in asset prices, um, which could, could happen. Um, and we still think that if you, if you look forward into next year, we're looking into, actually, I mean, uh, if I take the models at face value, an even higher price than nine and a half in terms of core CPI, you know, I think we get to 10.3
0: in March of next wow. year. Um. I mean, this is, this is happening in parallel to the Fed essentially trying to tighten. I mean, they're shedding up to $95 billion in assets a month, um, but that's from a swollen sort of $9 trillion balance sheet. Um, and, right. you know, that, so that's their attempt to curb inflation. But since 2008, they've tried to tighten twice already and, and failed. You know, Will this time be any different? And, and if so, why, I suppose?
1: Um, I don't think so. I mean, I, uh, I really don't think so. I think the, the problem is, is we have, um, that they don't really, and I mean, this honestly, you know, if I'm talking to friends of mine who are still in this policy, policy space, um, I'm flabbergasted to the degree to which they don't really understand how the balance sheet has worked. Um, I think just pure behavioral economics would tell you that it's quite inflationary for asset prices, And mm. that that's really, you know, if you, if you push some of them into a corner, And I've certainly done it to one policymaker. Um, You get a much clearer and more honest um, answer. But certainly when you you talk to the staffers about how QE works and how it filters into the economy, they don't don't see the direct connection uh, towards uh, equity prices in particular. And I think that's highly, highly dangerous. So I think, you know, what I hear is the plan is that they're going to try and sort of essentially set and forget the balance sheet um and just let it run off um in the background and and believe it or not and it always sort of makes them chuckle a little bit i was told that uh they think they can just reduce the size of the balance sheet from whatever it is now like 36 percent of gdp towards 18 and 20. um and and, you know and and everything will just be fine (laughs) and i just i just sort of (laughs) sit there and uh and uh and think they're smoking some damn good quality, uh, herbal, uh, herbal, uh, you know, cigarettes. Um, yeah, so I think the answer is no. I don't think it can go smoothly. I think particularly when you look at the extreme rise uh, that you have seen uh, in uh, U.S. equities, um, and particularly certain names. Right, I mean, these fang stocks uh, are really singularly carrying uh, the market and to use the, you know, the old British nursery rhyme, you know, 10 green bottles, you know, hanging on the wall. Right. I mean, we're now down to about three or four. Um, and this just looks like a very, very precarious market. If you start to pull out the support, um, I'm not so worried about interest rates. Actually, we've done some work, which suggests actually that the, um, price response of, uh, equities to interest rates has actually now turned negative. In other words, Fed funds rise and, and equities rise um, and um, and the, the, the reason is very simply that they, 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 they don't care about the price of money, they care really about the, the quantity of money. I'm sure there's a point where you could raise it enough that you'd crush the real economy, but really it's been steadily declining, um, that price sensitivity. And um, as I said, he's now running negative. So, you know, this is a big problem that the Fed faces um, is how to slow an economy. And, you know, this is one of the things I've been keen to stress to people. This is not just about um, raising interest rates, this is about tightening financial conditions. That's really the key element. And that's what I think people overlook, right? You constantly hear on, you know, CNBC or whatever, you know, people going on about, oh, well, you know, there's, eight hikes priced in the curve and the equity market seems to be able to take it, so we're fine. And then you just I I always scream at the T V at that point, but you don't bloody get it, you know, because if it's eight and you and you're still fine, then it's gonna have to be nine or it's gonna have to be ten. Because this isn't about interest rates per se. I mean Fed funds are just purely a signalling tool to the broader metrics in the economy, which we call financial conditions, and that's how
0: policy is transferred into the real economy. Yeah, got it, and 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 that that narrative that you just laid out there, you know, that is the pervasive narrative, which I guess is so worrying because that's you know that's the kind of narrative being peddled on CNBC or you know these sorts of sites. I've seen it around so so often, and um, and it really, well, I guess the market almost becomes dissolution, particularly retail investors, I and mean, I've got a couple of questions on that. You know, it's so misleading um, for a lot of retail investors out there. Uh, I just wanted to return to U.S. policymakers because. It does seem that not only are they not helping the situation, but they're exacerbating the situation with you know these constant sort of forms of stimulus. Uh, I read the other day direct payments to citizens helping cover uh, rising gas prices. Yeah, you know, isn't yeah. isn't that exactly the sort of policy that's going to exacerbate this this inflationary situation?
1: Yeah, and I and I and I think that's the case. I mean, I as I said, I just came back from this conference on the west coast, and I laid out this what if scenario. I mean, it's not necessarily my base case. I mean I think it's an increasingly likely scenario, but it's one which will require some other steps, you know, some boxes to be kicked before we can definitively say that it's the case. But it sort of feels to me, and, and you know, people talk about the the seventies. Well it's not the seventies. It can't be the seventies yet. The big thing that drove inflation in the seventies was super weak dollar and we don't have that yet. But what really people forget that before the seventies came the late sixties and that's where inflation started to rise Materially and, and broke out of a very stable long-term trend that we'd been in, you know, for most of the the very late fifties into mid-sixties. And what caused that, to your point, was poorly timed fiscal stimulus, um, initially related to um, to Johnson's Great Society, so a big pro-cyclical uh, social program for one of a for a better term, um, and that kicked it off in sort of sixty-five, and then. You know, it ran into sort of ongoing related spending related to the Vietnam War, and it just led to an economy operating well above trend and inflation expectations gradually becoming unanchored. Apparently, according to the Fed's own work, it only may have taken a short period as two years, and we've had two years of rising inflation expectations here in the US. So, uh, I, uh, you know, as I look at the sort of bigger picture, I think we've got all of those conditions potentially to have an extended period of rising inflation and, and yes, the world is disinflationary. In fact, you know, I started off the presentation I did uh, on the West Coast talking about a couple of Bank of England papers, uh, which they commissioned a, a few years back and they were absolutely fantastic. I'm Trying to see if I can find the titles because the titles alone (laughs) were just just killer. I don't know how the hell they came up with these. Venetians, Volcker, and the Value at Risk Eight Century of Bond Market Reversals, right? I mean, how the hell could you come up with a title? How'd you get Volcker and Venetians and VAR all in the same sentence? And then the the other one was Global Real Rates Since 1311, (laughs) Renaissance Roots and Rapid Reversals. And but the point was to go through and say, "Look, basically, they look at price trends and inflation trends and bond markets uh, over this seven hundred year period, and they use the predominant uh, risk free asset at the time, so they they you know use Venetian uh, bills of trade and the discount rate on those and what 's remarkable is how consistent." the um the cycle is despite the fact that you're talking over hundreds and hundreds of mm. years but also they talk about you know that essentially we've been in disinflationary a productivity driven disinflationary trend for like 450 460 years you know you could you could go back as far as sort of uh, the agricultural revolution in 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 england you know in the sort of uh, 1500s right And and sort of talk about that. I mean, you start to enclose land away from common land and how that boosted productivity. But then they talk about these periods of bond bear markets. There'd be um, nine bull markets. You can't quite say yet we're in a bear market. Nine big materially noticeable bull markets. And those have typically been associated with rapid periods of globalization, rapid periods of technological and financial innovation. And I think we can get really cocky you know with a relatively limited uh history uh, of our own experiences and say oh this is you know the technological innovation we have now is just so much greater mm. right than than any period in history really you know yeah i mean you know the internal combustion engine right you know the fast clipper ships right enclosing of common land i mean all that you know all the machinery that came out of the sort of the the cotton industry right th- that we had i mean that's more important than Salesforce.com or yeah. you know Microsoft Office. Mm. I mean, I, you know, I, I I think we tend to get very focused, myopically focused on the present day. But the point was is that, and perhaps more poignant for now, is how did those bond bull markets end? And the dominant factor was basically some geopolitical and or pandemic shock. Right. So either a war, typically, or a pandemic. We've arguably ticked both boxes. Right? We have opened Pandora's box, to go back to your original point, on fiscal spending. Yeah. You know, are we in a new phase? And I think we need to answer like we were in the 60s. Right? Are we building the foothills of what could become the inflation of the 2020s? Right? Mm. We can't say for certain, Right here, right now, right? Because we haven't, we don't have a weak dollar, right? You know, maybe, maybe we're going to get fiscal austerity at some point, but I don't see it. Yeah. You know, I think the risks are building that this is an extended cycle.
0: Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, you're, you're looking back at history there. And I think that's what a lot of retail investors in particular will try to do for cues as to what to do now, whether it's asset allocation or even, you know, portfolio management um if if they're just managing equities but you know they're not going to look back at 1311 but they might look back at 2002 to 2008 for example uh where we also saw the dollar right. depreciating to an extent um is is that a useful thing to do do you think yeah i think that's i think that's
1: a fine thing to do i mean i think that you know uh, to a large degree that's what my sort of thesis around this sort of great rotation in the equity market is about, you know, could we be on the cusp of a, you know, everyone, when you say like, you know, the dollar could fall 30%,
0: people are like, oh my
1: God, he's calling for the end of, you know, the end of the dollar as a reserve currency. I'm like, no,
0: right.
1: you know, it, it's, it's fallen that degree in the past, right? Three times it's fallen more than, you know, 40%, right? Yeah. And, um, the last one was 2002 to 2008 and, you know, I think even you were probably alive then. You know, you being as young as you are, like <laughs> as, as you are, right? Maybe you weren't doing yeah, yeah. markets, but you know, there's plenty of listeners who were and didn't strike me as that. Oh my God, the sky is falling, the world is over. Period. It was just a period where the dollar fell and inflation picked up materially, and the equities that did well within that period were very, very, very different from the equities that have
0: done well over the last decade, where the dollar has been rising. Yeah. Okay. So if we dig into that then, and we take cues not from an asset allocation perspective, but if we focus in on equities and we work out which equity sectors are likely to outperform in this new environment or Mm -hmm. an environment perhaps similar to 2002, 2008, what are those likely to be? And is it as simple as saying they're the complete opposite of what people have been holding, i.e. US tech? Yeah. I mean,
1: look, I mean, tech has changed. You know, the NASDAQ in 2000 is not the NASDAQ in, in 2022, right? Um, yeah. But there are some areas of the market which I think are very similar. I mean, you know, anyone who's followed me on Twitter knows that I get out, clearly get a bit of a rise out of digging at Kathy Wood's arc, right? Yeah. Um, but I've tweeted out there that, you know, just you just euphemism. I mean, you just look at the chart pattern of arc against the NASDAQ from 2000. It's the same damn chart, literally, almost to the tick, right? But why is that? Well, you know, the NASDAQ back then was the sort of, uh, you know, uh, leading uh, frontier market for tech, right? It was very, very long duration, you know, plenty of promise, even things like Microsoft and, and Cisco and things like that, which have survived and grown into behemoths, were back then sort of embryos of their current self, you know? 20 years from now are some of the names that Cathy Wood is punting going to be the behemoths. Quite possibly, okay? Mm -hmm. It still didn't stop you losing 90% of your money in 2000. So it's really, it's not about, I mean, just bear this in mind. To create a bubble, okay, outside really the sort of tulip bubble, which I've struggled with to come up with a narrative around it that really makes a ton of sense, Most bubbles are a function of an amazing narrative, but you don't usually create a bubble in an asset where the narrative isn't utterly compelling, right? I mean, the dot-com bubble has proved to be utterly transformative, right? But if you bought stocks in March of 2000, you paid the wrong price for them, right? You literally paid the wrong price. And that, I think, is the thing for people to be... Circumspect about, right? It's the old, in a way, it's the old shoe shine boy argument, right? You sit down and get your shoes polished, and the shoe shine guy is telling you to go and buy their stocks. It's usually time to get out, right? And I think you know there's too much hype around a lot of these these sectors. So when I looked through at the stocks that did well from 2002 to 2008 and have done poorly, and this is what's interesting, both on the way down in the dollar and in the way up since 2011. They're exactly the same stock. So the ones that did well are minings and metals and minerals and energy and transports in the U.S. And those those did super well in 2002 and 2008 as the dollar was rising and conversely poorly since 2011. And the ones that did poorly from 2002 to 2008 were tech, consumer discretionary, um, and those have done extraordinary well since two thousand eleven and the dollar rally. And then likewise, the markets. You know, if you take a step out, and you, you know, it was commodities that did well from two thousand two to two thousand eight, and emerging markets, and pretty much most developed markets more than the U.S., which was the worst performer from two
0: thousand two to two thousand eight. Yeah, and then vice versa. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Um, You mentioned emerging markets there. And I wanted to dig into that because, well, possibly an attempt to just find something positive within equity markets to talk about. But I think there's, you know, some defensive sectors in there that you've talked about that that people can look to. But ultimately, you know, emerging markets, it seems there's some opportunity there. I think so many, you know, there's been so many false dawns called for emerging markets over the past decade or two. But, uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not trying to Ask you to call one now, but right. you know, can people be more optimistic about EM? I suppose.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, the first thing I would say is I'm not a bear just because I don't want to buy Apple because it was up 240 <laughs> bloody percent at the recent highs doesn't mean yeah. I'm a bear, right? I am fully invested um, in the equity market at the moment. I do have some shorts, you know, full disclosure out there. I've put some ratios on if you want. Mm. Where I've sort of offset longs with with shorts because I don't like certain price action. And that's kind of how I'm choosing to play some of this. And at least the initial phases, as I said, it's not clear how that rotation between, let's say, commodities, energy, EM, DM, US tech happens, right? Because of the concentration risk in those certain names, it's often, as we found in the past, it can be the initial move. be a nasty one where everything kind of falls but the stuff that you want to own just falls less because it's just not owned right the stuff Mm -hmm. that's owned we know what's owned um so i think um you know when i look at em i think once again we've got to be a little careful i mean this is probably this is an extraordinarily tough environment period end of story but em actually is a little difficult in addition and that's because of this pseudo cold war that we're moving into. But I, I've been saying to clients for a number of years, and we've been writing about the sort of end of uh, of globalisation for really since sort of 2018, 2019. It seemed like the writing was on the wall. You could see it in a lot of the um, lying in public uh, papers that were being talked about China and the coming showdown between China and the US. Um, it just wasn't picked up on by markets, but it was plainly out there. And we started to cover quite a lot of this sort of stuff. Um, I think you've got to be careful on what you're going to be allowed to own. Okay. So in other words, I want to buy emerging markets. And thankfully we have ETFs that enable you to do this, right? Uh, yeah. Where the uh, where you're taking single country exposure, not just that broad amorphous, you know, tick that box. Do you want to have EM exposure? Because right? that's yeah. got a lot yeah. of China in, right? it a lot mm. of China in. And I'm not sure that I really want to be in China. I mean, I like the stuff that we've been pushing to our clients most recently has been Brazil, uh, Mexico, South Africa, and Chile. Those are the the four that we we really, really quite like. I think the currencies look great. I think the equity market looks good. You know, do they rise in the environment where the S&P drops, you know, 20 or 30% potentially? No, they'll get clattered. But as I said,
0: that's what short ETFs are for. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, to dig into one of those, um, you know, I heard your investment case for Chile. I think it was in a Real Vision video that I watched prior to the call. And I found that interesting. Um, so feel free to dig into that one or any others, of the, the the ones that you mentioned there. But talk to us about, you know, the, the tailwinds. No, I mean, I, I, think, for, for that I
1: think, look, I think we are in a, um, I still think we're, you know, the risks are rising to the economy, but I don't see them prescient just yet. Uh, I don't believe that, you know, in many respects, things is just sort of opening up in the service sector, right? If you look at continental Europe, this is going to be the first summer where we'll have seen a opening up. And I'm sure people are going to be very pissed off about, you know, paying a lot more and fuel surcharges and all that sort of crap that we're going to get. But is it going to stop them spending? And I think the answer is is no. I mean, you look over at the um, ISM services report from last week, you're not seeing weakness yet at all. Um, you know, 17 of 18 industries were expanding. I mean, that's just not not a recessionary kind of environment. So, if you're not in that yet, then you're still demand for raw materials is very high. Uh, I think the allocations are very very low in the scheme of things. Um, I think that Brazil um, and South Africa—I uh, haven't looked at Chile—but uh, almost certainly the case in, within this particular chart are some of the most beaten down currencies that you could possibly, possibly uh, envisage. I mean, Chile in particular has been really beaten up because of, uh, you know, this sort of perceived swing to communism. But what will be remarkable, you know, is, is Chile's very, very copper sensitive, extraordinary copper sensitive um, should be, uh, the currency should be an awfully lot stronger, like 30, 40% if the old correlations had held. And it's all because of this perceived sort of communist threat. But, you know, it will be quite remarkable if copper prices stay up here. um, And I've already started to read some papers along these lines that maybe the government won't have to go and seize all the assets of the private sector. Because what will they find? They'll find, oh, remarkably, our tax revenues have gone up an awful lot. So we can fulfill our social programs without killing the golden pen right? You know, it'll lay its eggs. Yeah. We can nick the eggs. That's fine, or a large proportion of them, and there'll still be plenty of stuff to go around. So I just, and and I think these Latin American currencies you can own as a Western investor, and you can own these these countries at least for now. Pretty clearly, I'm. Mean, you know, that's that's less certain with with China going forward. That you're going to be allowed, you're going to be encouraged. I mean, we saw that hellacious sell off in China. Chinese stocks, you know, mm. on the immediate concern that they were going to directly support the Russians militarily in Ukraine, and what happened? Investing firms said, "Well, look, I can't be associated with that, right? I mean, this is this is the E in ESG, right? You know, I can't I can't ethically touch that space if they're going to support um, Putin." So, you know, I think this is uh, you have to be circumspect, but I do like these Latin American. Um, markets on a relative basis really really do and I you know I've tweeted out you know if you look at say something like uh, which is you know you could use Brazil or, or Mexico to some extent in there or Chile you know if you look at say XME against so, so the mining metals ETF versus the S&P I mean we've we've broken out from a big 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 multi-year trend line and it looks to me that this thing could run you know four or five times from here. But bear in mind, that's, a, that's the ratio, right? I'm looking at the long the mining mm-hmm. metals versus short the S&P. Um, yeah. you know, so you have to be careful how you manage that, that risk. And this is not right here, right now, it's not an
0: easy time to do that. And i appreciate that. No, yeah, absolutely. No, completely take your point. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions, along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. We've mentioned recession a couple of times, and, and I think we've covered it, but it, it would be good to sort of look at it head on and really sort of dig into it just to, just to finish the episode. Um, and, you know, I'm talking to you as salaries are rapidly increasing, inflation, as we've already talked about, is raging, which unfortunately means people's fundamentals or purchasing power, I suppose, has dropped uh, due to the ongoing depreciation of, of fiat currencies. Um, we talked about the US. Yep. So where does that leave us regarding recession? Like how protracted do you think that could be?
1: Okay. So I generally don't like to use, you know, I like to use sort of slow down as really, rather than a recession, because you can get yeah. bouts of weak economic activity that don't necessarily fit the full definition of, you know, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so when you look at that, there's been sort of five expansions. Uh, of if you look, take the US, where we've got perhaps better data than most. Mm-hmm. Um, there've been five expansions since 2000, where you've gone from below 50 on the ISM manufacturing to a, to above. And then back below. So that's your sort of expansionary period, right? If you're growing above, if ISM is above, ISM manufacturing is above 50 or services, then you're pretty much growing. If, if you're below, then you're contracting. Mm-hmm. So we are 20 odd months into that. Um, you know, so, and most of them have been 36 months in length. So at this point, it's a logical discussion to be having, you know, yeah. could we have a recession, right? I mean, this yeah. is why I'm like, you know, all these guys say, oh, the yield curve is inverting, right? Well, you know, it's, it typically leads six to 24 months. I'm like, well, the natural cycle's only three years. So if by definition, once you're a year into this, you could be looking for a recession. If, if those are your metrics, you know, six to 24 months, 24 months. I mean, that's, that's lunacy. It tells me absolutely nothing, right? I mean, yeah. I, you know, um, here's the other thing. Governments or policy policy central bankers need these economies to slow down, particularly in the US. Yeah. Right? I mean the last GDP print we had was five and a half percent year on year GDP. I think we're probably gonna but if I look at year on year, I mean it's always you get inventory shifts and whatever, but I think the underlying financial conditions suggest that we're we're commensurate with about four and a half. Um we think that Americans actually do have still slightly Positive income growth. And the, the reason for that is uh, positive real income growth. After, right. you know, in other words, adjusted for inflation. And the reason for that is everyone looks at average hourly earnings. And um, average hourly earnings are not what you earn. You actually earn what you get paid an hour multiplied by the number of hours that you work multiplied by the number of people that are working. Yeah. When you do that, you're actually, you have wage growth in aggregate across the economy at somewhere between 10 and 11%. So yeah, you know, at eight and a half, we're getting CPI, we're getting damn close to making that negative, but it isn't negative yet. Plus, banks are literally falling all over themselves to lend money. Yeah. So even if the consumer gets squeezed, he can still fall back, and we know Americans love doing this, on credit. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the lending numbers, the recent credit numbers, they're all up. Credit surveys are all up. You know, So look, are the risks rising? Sure. And some sectors of the economy are going to slow, but that's what you tighten policy for, right? Yeah. I mean, I think people forget. I mean, trend growth is two, two and a half. We're already above trend and we're growing, I would argue, at probably double that. Yeah. Four to five. So yeah, housing has to slow, right? <laughs> You know, um, consumer durables, big ticket items should slow, right? But I'm actually concerned that some of this is just going to go straight into the service sector because we were naturally, we'd already consumed, we'd already bought every bloody iPad and iPhone and Peloton and, you know, God knows what else we needed over the last two years. So we were going to go out and travel. Yeah. I mean, the big test for me would be, you know, how many people say in the UK are listening to this are going to cancel their summer holidays. Mm. Yeah. And I bet the answer is not many. Right. I don't think so. Right. They might write that check for the surcharge, right? But for the fuel surcharge. They yeah, get yeah. A bit pissed off about it, but they're still going.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. So I don't see the recession just yet is the is the point. I really don't. Yeah. And it, but you started that, that, that answer by talking about, you know, the definition, how people define a recession. It's, it's interesting, I suppose, to me that. You've got the National Bureau of Economic Research logging the COVID nineteen recession in inverted commas as as a two month downturn. So that's the shortest in U.S. history. But then obviously, the the that traditional definition of a recession is is in quarters rather than months. So just again, kind of returning to that, um, you know, returning to how retail investors are supposed to understand this situation and then base. Financial decisions off the back of it—it's incredibly misleading, and I I don't understand how they can equate the current situation, the current data that we're getting, with just a two-month downturn because of COVID nineteen. I I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, really.
1: No, I mean, I think look—I mean, they have their their strict definition, and you know that's what you you did. You had you know you technically had a a technical recession in two quarters of you know back-to-back negative. Expansion in in um, in Q1 and Q2 of uh, 2020, um, but since then the thing is 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 exploded, right? I mean, we learned to, and I think look, this goes back to the fundamental problem, and I think that certainly on this side of the pond, and to some extent in the UK, you know, policymakers overreacted, right? I mean, you know, hindsight is always 2020, and I wouldn't have said I'd have reacted any differently, but. You know, you've got, and I do know this in sort of policy friends who talk to these guys. You know, if you're a Fed official and you've been asking for years, please, 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 can you do some fiscal? Right? Just, you know, help us out a bit so we don't have to do negative interest rates, which you're not really sure even work, right? You know, help us out a little bit and stimulate. Don't leave all the heavy lifting to us. Yeah. And then you get this. I mean, Trump spent a trillion dollars on his giveaways yeah right this lot spent sick. I mean it, it's it's just lunacy and this is why I'm still very aggressive on my inflation forecast I just don't believe this thing is filtered through the system yet I mean it, it takes a long long time for that amount of money to get you can see it you know it's sitting in savings accounts and you know accumulated wealth in housing and asset prices right you know we're, we're bet I mean God, if we, if we get a recession here with financial conditions this easy, I mean, they're 1% off 40 year lows, and it's, you know, in terms of easiness, right? They've just barely tightened. Yeah. And it's only 40 years because that's as far back as I can get the days to go. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is, this to me is is a market which is still, you know, delusional. And if I had to just give some advice to, to people, look, I think, you know, the thing that really matters to me is, as I said, it's not so much the interest rates per se, it's the amount of liquidity in the system, it's it's that, it's those central bank balance sheets. So when those central bank balance sheets and the Fed starting, right, and the Bank of England is going to start, you know, when those, when those guys start to shrink and the ECB is going to stop QE, when those guys stop putting money into the system, right? As soon as they turn the tap off, then if GDP is growing, if you think of the amount of money in the system as being, you know, gets divided between asset prices and the money that you need to generate that degree of GDP, right? Yeah. Um, As soon as that, as long as GDP keeps growing, then that ratio available to the financial market shrinks. And that is the dangerous bit for asset prices. Because we've just been playing this stupid game since 08. And, and just go and anyone who's got a charting pattern or, you know, can just pull up the charts and eyeball them too. go and look at global equity markets or the S&P and look at it against, you know, Central Bank or the Fed's balance sheet. It's the same damn chart. Mm. This is just funny money chasing asset prices. But that's where the money's gone. And now we have fiscal. It's going into, and that was the big game changer. It's going into the real economy. And now we have inflation. Now we've got to deal with it. And this is the time to be, I think, if, you, if you're not able to do what I can do, where I can go and buy a short ETF to balance out my long ETFs, so I have this sort of ratio, as I said, like the XME against the S&P or something like that. If you can't do that, then have some cash. Yeah. Now, this is a time to be cautious on the things that have done extraordinarily well. Just look to pair back. And then if we do get, which I suspect we will, you know, a, a nasty downward draft, you're going to have money to, to put into the stuff that you want. And, but that's when I would say it's not the stuff that you've owned up until now. It's not, you know, Apple again. It's not yeah. Microsoft. It's not, you know, you've had a damn good run. Do you really think Apple's going to do another 240% over the next two years? I think that's a lunacy. Yeah. Stuff that you leave to equity analysts
0: who are just, as I said, ambulance chasers. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I don't want to over egg the topic, but I want to finish this section, I suppose, just by trying to understand where we're going to go to next. And again, from a retail investor perspective, you know, how do we equate the situation where, as we've already discussed, policymakers are kind of almost obstinately refusing to to, uh, acknowledge another recession or at least to have one even but at the same time they continue to prop up markets with this unprecedented uh, stimulus or at least prop up uh, economies i should say you know how does that end because something's got to give at some point so when will it and how drastic could that effect be well i think yeah you're right so
1: so where does the Rubber meet the road. Um, The MO of the last few years, given the high degree of financialization that exists in the economies, in other words, the relationship between asset prices and the real economy, how quickly it feeds through, you know, you drop stocks and immediately sentiment starts to deteriorate and jobs advertised start to deteriorate, that sort of thing. Makes it extraordinarily hard for policymakers. is that policymakers are trying at this moment to gird their loins to be serious, yeah. right? That they're trying desperately, and they want to do the right thing, right? They can see the problems. It's become politicised. Inflation has become an issue, but to some degree they're trapped, yeah. and they're trapped. They, you know, use that great uh, British expression: "hoisted by their own petard." Right? Yeah. They are blown up by their own grenade, basically, and that is because their policies have pumped up these asset prices. And so I think they will try to withdraw the accommodation. I think at some point, given very, very inflated asset prices, which remind me of, in some respects, of the certain sectors of the dot com bubble, we will end up with a very steep sell off led by the US. And then we will see quite how robust that policy response is, and I suspect we will find it when push comes to the shove, somewhat wanting. And then as soon as they flinch, then I think you, you know, and inflation will come down as they as as equity prices come down. Mm-hmm. That's to me would be the policy errors that set us up. We'll be setting up those policy errors where that inability to really like grind it out, to take the pain, to crush inflation expectations right yeah well and that's you know and to say to to politicians no more money spent right don't spend any more money we've got to take this one right we've got to take this we've got to take this pain right i i don't think you know there's a willingness to do that and that's when to me we'll probably start the next wave uh of the inflation push you know um and that's setting us up i think for the what could become, as I said, the nineteen seventies. We're not there yet, but um, yeah, I mean that's right. I think the dollar will go here in the US. I think a lot of stuff will happen, but I think you can do extraordinarily well. You just got to be positioned in the right things, and as I said, it's not the things that you have, you have owned th- thus far, which means huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. When you think, I mean, you know, you go and look at the relative performance of things like XME, you know, so mining and metal and, and XLE, the energy. ETF yeah. since 2011 they're still down in absolute terms um when the you know from when the dollar based in 2011 versus tech which is up you know was up I think at the high 640%. I mean that that relative rotation could be just
0: bloody enormous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean uh, I think we can end the, the the main body of the interview at least on on that kind of fascinating sort of outlook mm. um and you know I think we don't need to be too worried about sounding bearish. Ultimately, I think what you've done is provide a really actionable sort of outlook for people, particularly in the retail space, as I say, again, to to action and manage their portfolios effectively. Um And yeah, you know, there's opportunities in other areas of the market. They're just not the ones that you've been invested in for the past, you know, five, ten years or whatever it is. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I really quite, on a relative basis, I quite like the footsie, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's not dollars. It's been truly unloved. It's got quite, you know, decent um, resource exposure. Yeah, yeah. So you know, if you really want to be super cautious, then bring some money back home out of the Nasdaq and put it in the in the footsie. I mean, you know, if you look at the UK equity market in dollar terms mm. and you look at it against the Nasdaq, I mean, the the long term trend, which you could sort of see, you know, uh, would suggest. Let's be super let's say since two thousand and fourteen, that ratio between the two has gone from point three to to at one point it was one point seven, mm. right? Most of the move occurred or a large proportion of that move occurred from COVID. So heading into COVID it was point nine and it went to one point seven. So it basically doubled. And it we know which way that went. It all went to the Nasdaq, right? Yeah. So you know, if that ratio goes back, and I'm very conservative, and I say that ratio goes back to one, which is sort of where the trend line would suggest, then you've got like a 40% relative move to happen, right? Mm. 30, 30 to 40% move. And I suspect, you know, the FTSE will probably stay here and it'll be the NASDAQ that'll take over the pain. But it, the longer term trend, really, pre 2014, which is the next big leg of the dollar up move, would suggest actually the ratio should be 0.4. Mm. Right, So, I mean, these, these relative movements,
0: it's, it's these, I think, the opportunities are huge. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and really interesting about the FTSE, because I don't hear too many people talking about that as well. Um, so, thank you for that, and thank you for the outlook that you've given us. Now, I want to focus with our quick-fire question round. So, this is mm-hmm. you know a more generic list of questions that we ask all of our guests, just a light-hearted way to end the episode, and feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word, if you like. The first one what is the most frequent mistake you think investors make
1: not being invested yeah
0: not being Good. invested yeah completely
1: agree sitting on too much cash
0: yeah yeah too much cash yeah absolutely and question 2 then is is where you go for investment or economic insights you know do you read any specific publishers for example
1: um i like to read i like to get a tone of things from the financial papers i think some very good one. You know, Wall Street Journal, um, FT, uh, Barons is a good publication over here. Just get a sense of what kind of people are looking at and thinking. I mean, they are reporters, so they're, they're reporting. They're not writing their own kind of uh, research. Um, and then, uh, you know, to be honest, my, my own stuff, I go, I go and look at charts. I go and look at charts a lot, whether economic charts or, you know, stock charts or bond
0: charts. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Question three: What is the most memorable moment from your career to date? Uh, this is a tricky question, um, but if is there one that you know sticks in the mind uh, the most? Yes, guys? yes.
1: So I was a young whippersnapper, and I was twenty-one, mm-hmm. and I uh, was running a precious metal options book uh, for Credit Suisse in Zurich mm-hmm. in silver. And uh, my boss didn't really understand how to run an options book. I was a young kid, but I'd been talking to people who did understand this better outside the firm. And I was very worried by this upside exposure that we had, um, which some clients might understand as negative gamma if the silver price spiked. And I was standing in the shower one morning listening to the BBC World Service. And this is before you had tickers and before you had everything else. Mm. And uh, silver hit a. I don't know what it was—a twenty-year high on on the uh, New York exchanges, on the COMEX exchange overnight—and I just <laughs> I was in the shower, and sort of jumped out and ran to the office, and now uh, we were we were down an inordinately large amount of wow. money.
0: So uh, yes, yes, that was that was one that particularly sticks in my mind. Yeah, I mean, it won't surprise you to hear that that question does usually uh, result in. Relatively negative answers. It does tend to be the losses that stick in the mind most. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fascinating. Well, our penultimate question then is uh, again just looking back at your career to date. I suppose what's a top tip for your younger self? So, if you go back in time, would you give yourself one bit of advice?
1: Aside from being, you know, and I'm not always the great practitioner of this because I'm a macro guy, not an equity guy. Is apart from being sort of invested, mm. um, is Uh, just be a student of history I mean I really really read a lot about history right I mean Mm. if I I quoted those two papers at the beginning from the Bank of England they're like three pages long three or four pages long Mm. okay read them think and come to your own conclusions Mm. you know because it's never ever totally different than the past right I mean you know we all thought the war was un- inconceivable, right, in the, in the 21st century. Yeah. Right? And well, now look at us. Yeah. It, none of this stuff is inconceivable. We've been here myriad of times before. Myriad of times before. Um, and, uh, you know, I really, really think, you know, to get some perspective, history is a great thing to frame world is particularly at times like this which i think are truly generational inflection points
0: yeah which is why i think the opportunity is so huge yeah absolutely no really solid advice um and our our final question probably uh, digs into a few of those points and it's the opto question i suppose we aim to speak to people Outperforming benchmark returns, uh, you know, people that come with a different approach to investing in markets. What is an investor's best source of alpha? So if you had to narrow it down to one thing, where do you think the great investors derive their outperformance, do you think?
1: So typically, uh, yeah. an awful lot of homework. And then, I mean, really, and it's not necessarily the best advice for retail. Um, Mm-hmm. concentrated
0: yeah. risk. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's relative as well, I suppose. So, you know. yeah,
1: you know, you do your homework, you, you, you figure out the, you know, from my perspective, you figure out your, you whether you do your stock analysis or you do your macro analysis, you say, oh my goodness, this is what I think is happening. This is what the market's happening. And then you look around for an instrument that is the most extremely mispriced in that scenario and that's the one you go for and you don't give up and you have the tenacity you know of a pit bull and you just keep shaking and shaking and shaking until it goes right you have to you have to be you know that's where risk management is really a big big skill set (laughs) <laughs> um, because it points you with some pretty big, hairy positions and P and L swings, you know. But yeah, that's the that's the nature of the, that's the nature of the beast, right? Don't expect to to put you know a a, a chip on every single square and win big, right? You're not going to do that on, on the roulette table. You have got to. I'm not saying put it all on you know black nineteen or something, but you know you've got to concentrate
0: risk. Okay, great. Well, that's fantastic. And a a nice message, I think, to end the podcast on. Uh, And that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Julian. It's been a a real pleasure.
1: No, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much indeed for having me on the show.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.